Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Hi guys, welcome to a special edition of the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm here today with two of my favorite people who are so patient to tell us all about this year's Climb Out of the Darkness event. It's a program of Postpartum Support International. We have Emily Jankowski-Newton, who is the Climb Out of the Darkness manager, also the queen of awesome, with her sidekick, Carrie Flora. She's the other queen of awesome. She co-coordinates this event with Emily. Hi, ladies. How are you? How are you? Hello. I Hello. We're going to let all of our listeners in a secret that we... Forgot to, well, I shouldn't say forgot. I hit the record button and it just didn't go. And so we have been chatting for some time <laughs> before we started recording. So there's that. Oh my goodness. All right. So like I was saying before, um, I find it so interesting ever since I've been in this kind of world of maternal mental health that everyone I've come in contact with who is um, in this profession um, has their own personal story. I don't really know of anyone who's just got into this just because um, everyone has, you know, their connection to this. And so I wanted to start out with you guys sharing your personal stories and experience that led you to this. So share that. And then I really want you to share also the shift um, when you were like, I need to advocate for, I need to advocate for other women because I know this is happening. And so when did that shift happen? What did that look like for you? How did you start um, becoming an advocate for women? So go ahead, Emily. I'll let you share your story. (laughs) I now have a kid in here using sign language, which I regrettably have taught them to do. (laughs) That is awesome. If you are hungry, make yourself a sandwich. You can do this. I believe in you. Go. Okay. I'll make it. Oh, crap. (laughs) apparently we're making nutella sandwiches yum hey you said sandwich healthy food choices have gone out the window because pandemic anyway um i got into this work through uh what i what i always describe as being like the um the most organic road which is i had a ssri deficiency and so here we are um but the longer version of that is my oldest is 13. He was born um, right after the new year. So, you know, he was born in February and I had just had the flu. And every time I get the flu, I get bronchitis because I'm an asthmatic and that's what my lungs like to do. And at the time, I, full disclosure, was afraid of the flu vaccine. 
I was convinced that it was going to, you know, make my kid have like four legs and whatever. And so I um, didn't get the flu shot. (laughs) So I got the flu and then I was induced. And when they induce you, you know, they're like pumping you full of fluids. So my body is already not managing its fluids well. So my lungs are, you know, filling with fluids and the cough is getting worse and worse and worse. And the anesthesiologist comes in. And by the way, he wasn't the one who, who actually put in the epidural. Like he was like the guy who came in later and was like, how's the epidural going? Right. And I was like, it's fine. Why are you here? (laughs) He's like, you have a cough. How did you get that cough? And I was like, I had the flu like last week. And he's like, you have SARS and then turned and walked out of the room like SARS COVID one. Right. So the last 12 months have been a little triggering for me. Um, but I, I delivered with a fever of like 104 and they put me on like a cooling blanket and I was shaking uncontrollably. And then I ended up with a C-section for obvious reasons. Cause I mean, with all the interventions that took place, like my uterus was like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, then I had a C-section scar and a guttural cough that was trying to clear all of the liquid <laughs> fluids that were in my lungs So for like a month, I would cough and put a blanket across or like a pillow across my C-section scar. But I had to cough until whatever was in my lungs dislodged enough. So I couldn't just cough once or twice. It was like, like cough, 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 cough. Anyway. So... And everyone who came to visit me afterwards, you know, like they had to wear masks. And every time people walked into the room, like that, you know, they got yelled at by the nurses that they weren't supposed to even go in there because I was quarantined and all this stuff, all because this doctor who was subsequently forced to retire very shortly after this incident, by the way, um, had decided that I had a cough and that meant that I had SARS. But they never tested you for it. <clears throat> oh, of course not. That would have made way too much sense. <laughs> That's what I don't understand. It's so bizarre. They, they decided that I had SARS. They put, you know, a um, a quarantine sign on my door. And, and then I was treated like a leper and like not given pain meds when I needed pain meds because the nurses were too afraid to come into the room. And now we have an entire generation of mothers who are who are delivering babies under infuriatingly similar circumstances. And, you know, I, I didn't like that. I was the only person in the world that had this really weird birth story, but now I'm, 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 I want to go fix everybody because there are a million people who are now, I think it's like uh, 140 million live births occur every year. So like there is 140 million people on the planet this year who have delivered under, you know, probably more similar circumstances than I would like. 
yeah, they have essentially your birth story. You need to, you need to like tell, I mean, you're going to be like the go-to for like, you know, those that (laughs) (laughs) you're going to have to do like just a whole conference just on that, you know, pregnancy and pandemics and yeah, I mean, it's insane. That's so insane. At least you like now there's, I don't want to say, you know, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but at least now it's like everybody's going through the same thing and there's protocols in place. This, you, you were by yourself and you didn't even have it. Oh yeah. I mean, there was venting a wheel for sure with me. Yeah. Terribly. It had corners and everything. Like it was the worst. I mean, I'm not saying it's I'm gonna it's right. fun to have a baby right now, but we're educated about COVID. You know, the nurses and doctors know. You know what I mean? Like, you're not gonna have people. You're not gonna be like behind a, a big red curtain or something. Right. Um, like I would call and be like, I need like I I need pain management drugs because you know I'm coughing profusely. Oh my god! Like I really need these drugs, and people would be like. I'm sorry, but I didn't go into your room because it said quarantine on the door. And I was like, it also says go to the nurse's station. Did you read the line below? No, they didn't. I mean, I mean, this is a hospital. I mean, do you not know how to deal with infectious disease? Like this is, I mean, that in itself is not a new thing. I mean, whether or not, I mean, you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of stuff that always Uh, irks me because- there needs to be protocol. There's a protocol in place for everything else. So there's, I mean, put a protocol in place for when this happens. Um, so yeah, now they're dealing with it on a much larger scale. And I think you're right, Carrie. I think, pe- you know, because not everybody, you know, is dealing with this, like literally every person, um, you know, there's a little bit more attention to it, you know, and things like that. So, you know, wow. So Absolutely. crazy. I I think that one of the things that we're seeing, though, is that like when this first became when we went from epidemic to pandemic, all hospitals had to go through this like instantaneous shift to like we need protocols on a maternity ward that we've never had to have. And so there have got to be hundreds of stories of those people who were in that like learning curve shift that you know, are, are probably more similar to mine than, than really should be. <laughs> but, and also you weren't diagnosed right away with a, a, a perinatal mood disorder, right? I mean, you, you, Oh no, you I had a attributed <laughs> that because the birth was so traumatic, I attributed the entire experience to the birth. Now in hindsight, um, needing to relive the birth multiple times a day, every day, and discuss it at length is a symptom of postpartum OCD. Did not realize that it wasn't normal to need to itemize out what we were going to do differently multiple times a day for two years and two months and two days until my second child was born. I had to talk about the birth at least twice a day. Wow. My husband is a saint, saint. <laughs> and then my second son was born and, and I still kind of felt like crap. Like I was super anxious and, and ragey and all the things that had been there that I had channeled into this 
birth experience didn't exist anymore. So I called the midwives and I was like, I apparently have PPD. So what do we do about that? (laughs) Right. Because you thought getting your ideal birth would make everything better. Oh yeah. Like instantly cured. Now it, the OCD stopped. (laughs) That was it. Everything else was still there. Wow. So when did we, and I know you have a really super lengthy journey and I want to know when the shift happened that you felt like you were one that you wanted to be an, um, you wanted to advocate on, on behalf of other women, but I know, and you know, sometimes, and it's some of the women that I, I've talked to, you know, want to help like right away. And we're like, oh my gosh, you're not, you're not healed enough to go into a space where you can share your story and, and, and have it not re-trigger yourself. Um, because that certainly, um, is something that happens. So how long did it take for you to be able to share what, share your experience in order to help, um, other women know they're not alone? I think, I think the shift happened when, so after the second one, I was like, this is because I wanted a girl and I have a second boy. And so like, I just need to, I just need to get over it. So, you know, I, I took medication and that helped and, but it was more like a bandaid on a dam. It was not a good fit med wise for me. Um, and then, you know, after my daughter was born, I was, I was convinced that like she would die of, of some newborn it could be anything from, from SIDS to an illness. You know, I was convinced all of it was going to happen. And I was like, this is, I can't attribute this to literally anything at all other than this is something that just repeatedly keeps happening because of chemical imbalance in my brain. Um, and I was writing a blog at the time and I was reading lots of bloggers who were really vocal about it. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I got plugged into this community of people who were like, I'm not going to be silent on this issue and writing versions of my story were way less triggering than trying to tell them. And so like that was therapy for a long time. Totally worked. <laughs> See, I'm yeah. so sane now. <laughs> oh, <that's her. laughs> oh. Okay. Wow, that is a pretty incredible story. Crazy. Carrie. Yes. <laughs> Want to share? <laughs> um, yes. Want to relive it again? <laughs> you uh, just it's me. <laughs> you you're talking about like re- being re-triggered, but really talking about it again gets me fired up because I think one of the things that Emily and I talk about is just the things that we have in common being a climb leader or being a volunteer or a coordinator or whatever it is in this, in this space is that you've got to, you've got to have like a fire in your belly and, and you've got to be willing to be authentic. And I'm, it just, uh, anyway. Yeah. So I think I, before when we were doing our, our 
a rehearsal version of this. <laughs> Actually, I, I left this part out. Um, and I think it, this also had a little bit something, uh, this was an added layer for me in that my, uh, daughter was, um, an IVF baby. So, um, you know, we've been trying for a while and, you know, the IVF took. And so it was, um, a fairly uneventful pregnancy. I was nauseous and a little, and felt icky for a few months, but other than that, I was fine. And, um, what, what really immediately struck me out of the gate, um, I was induced. Um, but what struck me out of the gate was the, the shift in the attention put upon you as a pregnant woman and then versus the attention put on you as a new mom. And I mean, you know, medically, socially, mentally, emotionally, you know, it's, you know, when you're pregnant, you know, at the end, you're seeing a doctor every week and, blood pressure and doing the glucose and don't eat, don't eat this and don't drink this. And you can't have sushi and you can't have, you got to fry your bologna. And, and, uh, and then after, you know what, like here's a sits bath, do this a couple times. And, but now we're, now we're more concerned about the baby and we're going to check the baby and make sure the baby's okay. And the baby sees the pediatrician two days after, and then four days after, and then seven days after. And it just really struck me how the focus shifted from me to her, where I felt like it should have been me and her. Right. <laughs> and that, that therein lies the, pro- therein lies the problem, of course, because in this health, health system, we, you know, wow, moms have a baby and they don't see their OB until, six to eight weeks later. So, um, you know, I, I had her, I ended up having a C-section too. I don't think that was really much of a factor other than it, it made recovery hard because we were in a three, a three level house. And, um, you know, I just kind of remember out of the gate feeling like this is ridiculously hard. And I, I kind of felt a little, um, betrayed by everyone who had told me, you know, how great this was going to be. And, you know, the Hallmark cards that were congratulating me and people sending me these cute little clothes. And I'm thinking, what, why would I even put her in this? She's just going to poop and pee and spit up on it. And it's just going to be more for me to wash. And I'd just rather have her naked in a diaper all day. Like it just, something just didn't jive. And I felt like either I had been lied to by everyone and it was this great big conspiracy or that this is just what motherhood was. And I just couldn't hack it. So I was very typical what you imagine um, PPD would be. It was just, you know, crying and sad and, you know, I was sleep deprived and um, in hindsight, my husband, neither my husband nor my, nor I do well with lack of sleep. So, um, so we started, you know, I mean, a week or so into this, I was a week and a half, two weeks into this, I was like, nope, this, something's not right. So there was no fear of stigma or fear of reaching out or anything like that. I was like, nope, we gotta, we gotta call somebody. This, this is something is not right. And, um, so we looked on my insurance company's website and 
started calling and two of the numbers were disconnected and another doctor like wasn't taking new patients. And it was really, really frustrating and disheartening. And again, in my head, I'm like, this, there is a disconnect here. So this is not right. I, I am not the only person going through this. And I fortunately had a friend at the time who was a resident at Georgetown and she um, talked to someone there who referred me to someone here in Baltimore and they were at Johns Hopkins and um, there's a women's mood disorder clinic at Johns Hopkins. So um, I couldn't get seen for a few weeks. It felt like a lifetime, but that's actually a short wait now. I mean, my daughter's 10, but I think now to get in it's months. Um, I wanted to see the person that I was referred to. So that was going to take a little while to get on her calendar and she didn't take insurance and it was exorbitantly expensive. And, um, you know, I, uh, then I, of course I did drag the baby with me, you know, into downtown Baltimore, um, try to find this place. And, um, I just, you know, I ended up getting on meds and, and seeing her and finding, I, saw a therapist. And fortunately after the newborn period was over, she was a pretty easy baby. And I think that really helped when, you know, I was able to get sleep and she was not a picky eater. She nursed, she took the bottle, like she was very chill. Um, and so I just, it started just, it just made me angry. It, it made me mad. I was like, God, you know, I am a privileged middle-class white woman and I have health insurance and I have a husband who makes good money and I have support. I have family and friends and, um, you know, you shouldn't have to know somebody that is a resident at a psychiatric hospital to get help and you shouldn't have to pay what I paid. (laughs) Um, so it just, it just kind of, I started being very outspoken and very, I I think people really thought I was bitter and like Debbie Downer. And maybe I was a little bit bitter, but you know, people would be, people would be pregnant and I'd be like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Be like, you know, those Hallmark cards, they shouldn't, they should say, congratulations. I'll never sleeping again. I just, I felt like, I I don't know. I just felt like a new mom's expectations are just, just driven in this direction, this somebody else, um, we had a post on the page the other day, just this toxic positivity. Like nobody wants to say, Oh my God, you know, I was having intrusive thoughts and it's like, I didn't want to tell anybody. And until I got to my psychiatrist and she explained, I know you're not going to act on it, but have you? And I was like, yeah, She's like, okay, those are called intrusive thoughts. That's totally, you know, right in line with having postpartum depression. So um, I actually didn't get connected into the advocacy work until after I had a second child. Two, it was exactly two years and about two years and three months later, just like Emily's kids. And um, uh, we were living in a different house at the time and I, I was, I was already on meds, but the difference is I, I got so well, so fast with my daughter. I mean, within a matter of, I would say eight to 12 weeks when it didn't happen with my son, I got resentful and, um, I, I got, you know, just like sad again, you know, because he, he was not a chill baby. 
And in my head, I'm like, no, no, this is, it's supposed to be better by now. Like, look, look at the baby journal. Like she was sleeping, you know, she's sleeping through the night by now. Like why he needs to be sleeping through the night. And, um, so just, you know, why own expectations and my own. So I, I reached out and I think I was looking for just like, I don't know if I was looking for like a support group or, but I came across, um, a friend, uh, who Emily and I know, Laurie, uh, she was she was coordinating one of the first climbs out of the darkness here in Baltimore, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to help. Like, I want to help raise money. I want to help do awareness. Like, all of that. Like, I want. I need to funnel this into something positive. So that's uh, that's that's my story. <laughs> I love it. I love it, and I love that it kind of, that I didn't realize that one of the first connections that you had was the climb, and how how cool is yep. that? That it's all you know that you're helping run that's, this thing. So yeah, that's awesome. how we met. Yeah, that's how we met. I mean, we independently had both like sent emails to the leaders in Baltimore and said like we want to do more, and they were mm-hmm. like, "Cool, you guys are the next generation <laughs> of people in charge," and we were like. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. And I, I think there's still like a ton of people that don't know a lot about Climb Out of the Darkness and how it came about and what it is. So I guess just tell us a little bit about it so people understand, you know, what it is. So the climb was um, born through a different organization than the one that runs it now. But in, in essence, the, the climb has always been this space where people can gather, build community, advocate either in person or, or on social media, um, and, and raise money. And the, the people who like got plugged in with that first organization had such passion that the climb just exploded into this, like, have you heard about it? Every, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing a climb, you know, (laughs) like it it became this, you know, it's, it's not like a a race for the cure. It's, it's like a, a play date and a, and a conference and a parenting class and a support group got shoved into a box and the box got shaken. And then like, that's what comes out is this combination of all of that. And when the organization that started the climb um, disbanded the, you know, they wanted the climb to continue and, and they called PSI and they were like, listen, we need an organization that's going to take this on. And PSI was like, heck yes, we will do that. And, and, you know, the, I I always credit the climb leaders that the passion of the people who were doing the day-to-day work in that space is what made it a awesome to do the work that I do now, but, but B like it, it always, it made it, it made it something that couldn't, couldn't stop. Like we couldn't just say, oh, well, there won't be a climb anymore. Like that was, it was never an option. Because it mattered to too many people. People, right? And and the things that I'm sorry that I've been to. I I actually uh, was a leader 
for a climb that nobody showed up to. So it was just me. Um, that was awesome. But I'm doing it again. So I'm super excited to start a new one. So in Palm Beach County, Florida. So I'm super excited about that. But I was able to go to a climb in um, North Carolina, um, which was which is in our um, – I don't know if – I think clips of that made it into um, the documentary – and it's so transformative. The the energy that was in that park that day is just unlike anything I had ever felt from a group of people. And and you're right. I have been to Race for the Cure, and I've I've been to all those those. And I and and perhaps it's because you know I, I don't have a personal connection so much to those other things, but. Wow. Like you're right. Like it is just an amazing, amazing experience. So go ahead, Carrie. You were, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I don't remember what I was going to say. Oh, um, well, so there's a couple of things about the climb that I think kind of sets it apart. Not that, you know, any of these other fundraisers are, are deficient in any way, but you know, we're still small, we're still grassroots. Um, but what I like about PSI when they took over the climb is that they gave the option for folks to fundraise for their local chapters because PSI has state chapters, not every state, but maybe, I don't know, 42 states, I think. Um, and you can, when you decide to host a climb, you can either fundraise directly for PSI, uh, you can fundraise for your local chapter. You can partner with a local organization and fundraise for them where they get, I think they keep like 74% of it, like a portion of it goes back to PSI. And now this year, we are allowing folks to fundraise for the Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color, which is another program of PSI. So one of the hardest things in peer-to-peer fundraising is, for me, was this was my story and he did it and I'd like you to donate and it's going to this big national organization, and it, and that's really for a lot of these a lot of these events. Um, and I like the fact that people locally can kind of have skin in the game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, and to answer your question earlier, I think you asked like what a, you know what a climb is like. That's another great thing is that. Climbs vary from town to town, from state to state. We have people who literally have hiked up mountains and people like Emily and I have just, you know, walked around a lake one lap because it was really hot. And it was, it was paved, the walk that we took. It was paved. Yeah, let's not be. It wasn't even dirt. I mean, come on. It was just a paved. (laughs) So. Story of Sorry. our lives. Just okay. myself. <laughs> um, I call that feral time in my house. My children are having some feral time. We have a lot of cash, so they actually understand yeah. what that means. Like, because some cats are not yeah. for humans. <laughs> she needed shorts. So that was worth interrupting. She needed shorts. Um, well, yeah. you know, because I'm in charge of the shorts, I guess. Um. What else? What else about the climb? 
Um, you talked about how, it, and I and I didn't know this um, that now there's different ways that the funds can be used and locally, which I think that is awesome. So that's a kind of a big change recently, I guess. You know, with with that part of it, um, I really want to tell people how they can get involved, and I'm I'm going to put all kinds of links in the description so we can. Um, get people involved, but what are the ways I know you can join a climb, you can be a leader. There's still, I'm, I'm assuming because we are, this is a special edition because of this time sensitive topic. We want to make people, um, you know, aware of this so that they can get involved any way that they want to. So what are the different ways that people can get involved? Well, our, yes. first, oh. our first newest way is there is also now a virtual 5k. So if you're like, Listen, I like exercise, but I just kind of want to run. I kind of want to do something on my own. Like I'm just going to run my feelings out or what, or, or you're just a runner and you have no, no connection to mental health. You just need that metal. Right. You get that metal. We have medals. We literally have medals. I'm holding it up right now. It's awesome. Um, I like to feel like this. Oh. oh my God. <laughs> and, and our motto is, listen, like you, you might not realize that you're like a champ at parenting. So we didn't get you a gold, but we got you a silver. Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> makes sense. We're, all, we're awesome. all about the good enough. Yeah. The good enough parenting is, parenting. Yeah. is good enough. You don't have um, to be a gold medal yeah. parent. You just have to participate. That's right. You just need the participation trophy. That's all. Exactly. So people can go to um, PSI's website, which is postpartum.net. There's information there about the climb. Um, People can go to our Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash PSI climb out. That's the climb page. PSI actually also has its own uh, Facebook page. But we have some states here that we do not have on the map yet. Whoa. Okay. So do we know what those are? Uh, (laughs) Do you have to? We've got, although Emily, I think Missouri just came on, didn't they? Missouri and Ohio are now online. Nice. So we, we are missing Rhode Island, Delaware. West Virginia, Kentucky, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, Idaho, Nevada, and Hawaii. I said maybe people just don't get depressed in Hawaii. Like maybe there's like, that's totally plausible. Totally Carrie plausible. Carrie has seasonal affective disorder, so she carries that around as a it's- lens through which she views PMADs. But <laughs> I do. I, I get serious seasonal affective disorder. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm definitely going to call those states out in the post, too. We want to make sure we, I mean, every single state repre- represented, I think, would just be amazing. So I'm now going to make I that mean, my I can also so give you a list of which Canadian provinces do not. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. For sure. We this have is a, several. This, I will give you that list. Um, this is a worldwide event. Yeah. You do not have to be in the U.S. We already have, I think, four climbs in Canada. Yes. Oh, two nice. in Ontario, okay. one in Saskatchewan, and one in, one in British, British Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Vancouver. So, um, 
So yeah, you don't have to be in the U.S. to do a climb. We've actually had climbs in, uh, we have one climb in Kenya and they've had climbs four or five years. Yeah, they've been yeah, climbing for a while. I remember seeing pictures. We've had climbs all over. Um, and, and that's not to say we don't still need, I mean, I think Texas only has like two, you know, that's a big state. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can sign up to be a climber, uh, a climb leader, or if you just want to join a climb, all that information's on the website and on the Facebook page. And um, the, so like one of the first steps that climb leaders take is they fill out an application, which sounds like, like we're trying to evaluate you, but really that's our way of making sure that we gather all the information that we need. So, you know, we need, we need your mailing address. We need to know how, like which email is actually best to reach you at, not the one that you use for spam. Um, we want to know, <laughs> I mean, we all do that. It's fine. Right. I do. We do. I'm not judging. <laughs> um, you know, we also want to know, like, are you already um, following the climb and PSI on Facebook or, or do you need help doing that? Like, are you already really on social media and you're social media savvy or is that an area where like you want an assist? Um, because there, there are some parts of this that are, you know, if you want to get fancy, you could do your own HTML coding on your own little, you know, climb fundraising team page and zhuzh it up. Or, or you could, you know, make a team page and then just funnel everyone, you know, onto it and, and focus on the in-person event and, and put less effort into the administrative things. Cause those are the things right. that we can help, with, you know? Yeah, we do, we do provide resources and training. Um, but we also want to kind of just tamper everyone's expectations and say that it is the climb is only as big or as complicated as you want it to be. Like every year we tried to do bigger and better things and have more fundraisers. And, um, you know, if you're not good with social media or you don't like Canva and you don't like doing, you know, find yourself a co-leader that can do those things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so excited to start mine. And I did get the application and I will fill it out and it's super easy and it's not like an application application. Um, right. I was trying to figure Just for- out, I'm trying to figure out my co-leader, which it's, that's, I, so that's why I didn't complete the whole thing. But yes, I'm, I'm working on that today is on my to-do list. So there you um, go. I'm super excited about it. So, um, so really quickly, um, how you said that the, you know, the funds can be used locally. Can you just give people some examples of what that might look like for a local community? You know, where it's always so hard to ask people to donate for this, that, and the other. I feel like there's always something to donate. There's always a GoFundMe. There's always like something out there. So mm-hmm. what, what specifically can this funding help locally for, for families? I'm a little um, first. I, so to, let's use, let's use the climb that's happening in Maine this year as an example. Uh, they have a local nonprofit. Their nonprofit has filled out the application for being a local partner. Um, that is an application that actually is a little bit more rigorous. Um, we do want to know how the money is going to get used. And, and then we want to be able to, to like brag about it with you that, that you did mm-hmm. awesome things and changed, you know, the landscape of, of perinatal mental health as a result. Um, so that's an example of a nonprofit. We also have a, um, 
a, a climb leader who is also a therapist who wants to be able to offer free or reduced rate services in her area. Um, and so she, it's, it's not, it's not a nonprofit. It's, uh, you know, it's being used again, people who go into this work, like we said in the beginning are a little angry, super passionate, and we want to change the world. And so we're all going to have our own way of approaching that. Like we're all going to have our own, you know, superpowers that we bring to the table to make that happen. And so we don't, we don't want to try to say that like only certain organizations or only certain efforts are worth being a partner organization. There are, there are an infinite number of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Right. That's key. Not, not, you don't need to be a nonprofit to partner up with a climb. And I want to say that it's it really what it is, is somebody decides they want to lead a climb and then they can choose. But also there are sometimes coworkers or folks, you know, loosely associated with an organization that decide, hey, let's put on a climb and we can benefit this organization. And yeah, like Emily said, it's usually, um, you know, paying for therapist or, you know, a lot of these, um, organizations have weekly, um, uh, support groups. And so they want to pay a babysitter or two to, to, so the women can bring their children. So it, it really does vary. But one of the things I wanted to touch on, cause we didn't, there's so you know, there's so much that goes tan- tangentially, tangentially, that's the word to PPDs, right? There's so many things. I just, I just did a post about this, like so many things connected to PMADs um, that need our attention as well to kind of make that, that world better. Um, But one of the things we didn't really get to touch on was, was training. And so these are our stories, right? And the stigma needs to be broken and, um, you know, people need to be aware of the signs and, um, and have access to care. We need access to care. We need all sorts of things, right? But one of the big things is training for providers. And so we've seen study after study where if a mom, especially a mom of color, has a doula or a midwife, it improves birth outcomes and which obviously improve the situations for the mom. So when you're fundraising for a local chapter and the uh, Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color, nine out of 10 times, the the money that you're raising is going to go right back into scholarships for folks to take the PSI training and certificate courses, which teaches therapists and um, social workers and doulas and midwives and, you know, CRNAs, gives them... um, the the training they need in postpartum depression and perinatal mood disorders, including the meds. There's a meds side. I mean, that's like a whole yeah. medical piece that I can't speak on really, but it's every that, that training I've done, and it's everything from how do these things present because there's an infinite number of ways that depression or anxiety or OCD or, or psychosis even will look in the person. 
And then it goes on to like what courses of treatment could be applied. Right. So yeah. I'm so glad you guys brought this up because that is a very, very important piece. Um, it's just, it's, yeah, it's a super important piece. And we actually just recently changed around the Dark Side of the Full Moon website um, to include all of those wonderful links to postpartum.net for providers so that they can access not only like the free webinars, but, you know, other trainings, uh, you know, to give them these certifications and accreditations, you know, so they can be better informed when they're treating a family um, who's experiencing this. Um, and I am also a big advocate for just providers in general being more empathetic. Um, that empathy piece, you know, it can be very knowledgeable, but that bedside manner, that's just like, I mean, and, and when you talk about that doctor who came in and said, you know, you have SARS and like walks out, like, like what, you know, and it's, it's just, they're so oblivious to the, the harm that that causes. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know if it's just because they're so numb to, you know, I don't know, but that, that piece of it, that empathy piece still can make such a big difference, you know, in that whole experience. Um, and it's just, and Carrie, when you were talking about, um, you know, how that shift happens when you have, uh, your baby, it reminded me of, you know, when I had Allie and she was, she was early. So she was in the NICU for 10 days, but she was like the biggest baby in the NICU. <laughs> so I remember like being, you know, having those typical symptoms and being upset in my room and the nurse saying, I don't understand why you're so upset. Like your baby's going to live. She's the biggest baby in the NICU. Like, I don't understand why you're so oh. upset. And I'm just like, are you serious? Like, so there is such that disconnect of, well, if your baby's okay, you know, that you, you, must, be, be okay. you must be okay. Like you need to be fine. You know, these other parents are dealing with the possible death of their baby. They have something to be upset about. Oh, you don't. Yes. So what's the deal? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's just so many different ways that families are traumatized in those situations that, I mean, these things scar for a really, really, really long time. And, um, you know, that's why even in the work that I do now, that trauma-informed care piece is just so important when people are are working with people who, you know, anyone, it doesn't even have to be someone who you know has been through something. I mean, we all experience trauma and trauma is, you know, defined by the person experiencing it. And so everybody has a different you know, what that looks like for them. So, so interesting. Some sort of representation from at least each state in the United States and then, you know, in Canada. So that's, that's so exciting. I'm super excited. We're going to put all the links in the description and all the websites you guys um, can connect with Emily and Carrie and um, make that happen. So thank you ladies so much. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. Welcome. This was fun. Very fun. Thanks so much for listening. And links to everything we talked about can be found in the description of this podcast episode or visit www.postpartum.net for more information on the climb. <laughs>